Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for Rhythms, a series exploring the essence of Christian life, asking, who am I becoming? It's about personal formation, shaping our lives with Christian values, moving beyond the mere thoughts about God to practical habits and disciplines that mirror Jesus. These are our Rhythms. We pray this message is a blessing. If you're able, um, if you can upstand for the reading of Scripture. This afternoon's reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If the eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Friends, why don't you stay standing for a real quick sec? It's nothing like good calisthenics on a hot Brisbane Sunday afternoon. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we gather. We gather first and foremost to glorify you, to minister to you, to bless you. You are worthy. Before we do this afternoon is marvel at your beauty. God, it will have been enough. But Lord Jesus, you also promised us in your word that when we read it, when we teach it, it never returns void. So we pray, would you shape us? Holy Spirit, speak to us that we might become more like you, Jesus, that we might become more like the missionary sent into the world for your glory and its good. Jesus, we need you. Holy Spirit, would your will be done in this place. Less of me, more of you. And all God's people said, amen. Grab yourselves a seat. I promise there won't be any standing up for at least five minutes. Um, uh, Pastor Alex invited me to come preach at Brisbane. And I said, Alex, it's been a while since I've preached at Brisbane. Um, I'd love a topic that's just so easy. Something that would just be uh, really like winsome. When people hear that I'm preaching on it, they just feel warmth and kindness and, and just this sense of excitement that I get to talk on this today. He said, oh man, you should come preach about money. And uh, I thought, wow, even by the way that joke landed, uh, that probably wasn't what I was hoping for. Friends, it's so excited to be here. So many dear friends that I see uh, sitting and being here amongst us today. And many people I've never met before, which is such a beautiful testimony of what God's doing at New Life Brisbane. I had the fortune to spend some time with Pastor Alex this week on a part week finish our words, uh, pastor's retreat. Um, it was amazing just listening to his heart and the heart of the team here around what God is doing, what they long for God to do here at New Life Brisbane. But we're gonna start today with some trivia. Does anyone know who this is? Anyone know who this is? This is a man named Alfred Nobel. Alfred Nobel was uh, a man inventor back in the 1800s who worked out how to use liquid nitrogen to concentrate it down into solid form that it might be used in explosives. We now call his invention 
dynamite or TNT. It changed the way that landscaping happened in the 1800s, obviously. Mining happened in the 1800s. But it also dramatically changed how warfare happened. As soon as dynamite and this sense of explosions came about, warfare became far more grotesque and bloody than ever before. But it also meant that there was a high demand and need for dynamite. Alfred Nobel became one of the richest men in a short period of time in the 1800s, became a multimillionaire, perhaps the equivalent of a billionaire by today's standards. But the story takes a weird turn when Alfred wakes up one day and opens the newspapers to find his obituary printed in not just one, but almost every newspaper in town stating, Alfred Nobel has died. Realising either he's a ghost or the newspapers have it drastically wrong. He had this moment, which I think would be interesting, where he got to read what people wrote about him thinking he had died. Now, I think most of us would be like, I would love to know what people had written about me after I died, and Alfred soon regretted it. In fact, the next moments as he read, he read, Alfred Nobel, the merchant of death is dead. Another newspaper accused him of being not only a warmonger, but the reason why many mothers went to bed weeping at the loss of their sons. It was scathing rebuke that his whole life had been about seeing to improve humanity and all he was remembered for was death. But like any good story, it wasn't the end because he wasn't dead. He had a moment where he could actually choose to rewrite his legacy, to rewrite what people said about him. And so he spent the rest of his life spending time investing in people who innovated and invented. In fact, he named a prize after him, which we now call the Nobel Prize. And there were five, six categories. There's a Nobel Peace Prize, there's a Nobel Literature, there's Nobel Physics, there's all these categories, all about human ingenuity and celebrating people who gave back to humanity in ways that made the world better. So much so that he took 95% of his wealth and made it, invested it as a hedge fund and said, this can now be used for prize money until long after I'm gone. It still has about $222 million in that account, hundreds of years after his death. Why? Because he said, I wanna leave a legacy for humanity greater than myself. And I wanna use the finances I gained through creating death and dynamite to actually motivate people to bless the world. And it provokes a question in me, What will your finances be used to write? What legacy will your treasure, your investments, your life leave behind long after you are gone? See, Alfred had this weird idea, a new idea, a great idea, I would posture, that maybe everything he had wasn't for him that the legacy he would leave wasn't that he was an amazing billionaire or a crazy inventor, but that he would call people to live better lives that he wanted to celebrate long after he had left the world. There will come a day when you and I will no longer tread this earth the way we do now. And it's interesting when I pause and wonder, what will be my obituary? See, the, the passage that we read from Jesus today challenges us. Where are we investing our effort, our time, but he uses this different word, treasure. Is it in things that long after we are gone will also be gone? Or things that have a longer lasting value than merely our last breath? In a moment, 
we recognise that Jesus steps into an issue that many of us probably realise isn't kosher to talk about. Two things people don't like people talking about in church, politics and money. Weirdly, whenever we talk about sex, everyone rocks up. But whenever it's like politics and money, people are like, I've got you know, some kind of in-law barbecue on. And the reason is, we, we don't like being confronted with something that we long to retain control of. We're in this series called Rhythms at the Moment. Pastor Alex describes it so beautifully. Every time I hear him talk about it, the rhythms of our lives, these habits that we have, they actually form us and shape us. It's not New Year's resolutions that, that shape us. It's the habitual, more small decisions we make day in and day out that actually lead us to who we're becoming. And I wanna offer today that I believe the decisions you make around generosity and money are some of the most formative of your life. Sometimes when I'm a pastor, uh, people say to me, oh, the church always talks about money. It's interesting, um, we actually don't talk about money anywhere near the amount that Jesus did. Jesus spoke, spent 15% of all His teaching was on money. One out of 10 gospel scriptures is on money and 16 out of the 38 parables that Jesus offers to the world was on money. Timothy Keller says this, Jesus warns people more, far more about greed than about sex. Yet almost no one thinks they're guilty of it. When was the last time you came down the front for prayer and you're like, can you just pray for me? I've got too much money. He goes on to say, therefore we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. It is hard to sit in church and have this mantra that we are passionate about seeing more people become more like Jesus and think that there are some limits that are off limits to discipleship. There are, lim- there are some parts of our life that Jesus can talk about this and I'm happy to engage on these controversial issues around identity and, and sexual identity politics and po- even politics in itself, even reconciliation. But as soon as we start talking about money, it's like the church shouldn't speak into that when Jesus was never timid, but stepped boldly in. Why? Because Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10 had this bold claim. I did not come to rob and steal from you like the enemy does. I've come to offer you life and life to the full. So when Jesus has these ideas that He talks about with treasure and heaven and money, friends, you may be here today and you don't know Jesus. Or maybe you're here today and you're, you're a firm follower of Him. When Jesus speaks of things, His end game, His ultimate hope is that you would have life and life to the full. When Jesus teaches on a topic, it is not that we would have a new weight or a new burden or a new law or a new command that would break us but that we might have a new framework for which we might become more of who we were created to be. So when Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 boldly steps in, friends, I would invite us to boldly listen. Because like never before, I'm overwhelmed by my financial advice. There's like, you know, 15,000 podcasts on what it means to be fire. Does anyone know what I mean by fire? This isn't like a, you know, lit term. Like fire, financially independent, retire early. It's like the biggest craze today. Or like we, we have these talks or these Instagrams that like uh, you need more forms of passive income, that the more forms of passive income we have, we'll achieve, achieve financial freedom as if that is what will bring us life. You see, we even have Barefoot Investors and a great book that we recommend that you have, Barefoot Disciples, that actually informs us how we should spend our money. Today, I want us to go to the Barefoot Saviour and see what, he, what investment advice He might give us around finances, given His eternal perspective. He says this in Matthew chapter six. Someone, I was reading an article this week, said Jesus never gave us any commands about money. This passage would beg to differ. Do not 
store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus seems to undermine nearly every single piece of financial advice I've ever heard. Get a savings account, invest money, don't buy crypto or buy crypto, depends who you listen to these days. You know, but, but Jesus doesn't start with anything. He just says, do not store up treasures for yourself on earth where things can rust, things can rot and things can steal. Now, this is an interesting piece of advice, but I think Jesus, the eternal God who became man, He understands entropy. He understands the nature of things. A guy named John Ortberg tells a story about how his grandmother used to play Monopoly with him. Does anyone here like the game Monopoly? A couple of us. I hate the game Monopoly. Just like that wasn't like a, oh, maybe the past. No, I really don't like it. My wife bought it for me for Valentine's Day about 12 years ago. We've played it once. She beat me. I've never played it again with her. Um, highly competitive uh, person. So that was a bad Valentine's Day. But moving along, Monopoly is this game where you, you try to become a property mogul, right? It was actually invented to teach people around the errors of debt and uh, overextending yourself and just became a competitive game of greed, right? So John Altberg's playing with his grandmother and there's this, his grandmother's playing with his five-year-old grandson, John. And as she does, she just wipes the floor with him, right? It's kind of like my style of parenting. There's no kind of like, oh, you did really well. Now, if he didn't earn it, he doesn't get it. And so she's just like, you know, she's buying all of Park Mall. She's getting everything that's amazing. She's got blue, green, red. If you know Monopoly, you know what I'm talking about. She's got all the good ones. And finally, eventually she'll defeat him. He'll be like, I'll never be as good as you. And she would turn to him and say, if you learn from me, you can learn how to play Monopoly well. So he does a year after year after year until eventually, he beats her one day and it is like the best thing that has ever happened to him. And John tells the story that he's running around the living room, beating his chest, arms in the air, being like, yeah, I win, Grandma. I learned every lesson and I've, I've dominated. She goes, well, now there's one last lesson I have for you. And he's like, what is it? He's starting a bank account for me. What's going on? What's next? She takes everything, puts it on the board, folds up the board, puts it in the box, puts it away. She goes, the last lesson is this. It all goes back in the box. It all goes back in the box. What's she saying? None of it lasts. None of it lasts. You're triumphant, but your triumph only lasts as long as the board stays out. Is this not what Jesus is trying to communicate? It all goes back in the box. Not my property portfolio, Michael, that's too big for no box. Checkmate, got you there. I think we understand the analogy. It all fades. It all deteriorates. So the idea around financial investment, at least from my understanding, is that when you talk to financial advisors, they say, and this is good advice. Please hear me say, like when you're thinking basic finances, this is actually really helpful, it's wise. But like, don't think immediate and what you want now. Think long-term, think in investment. And Jesus seems to challenge, if we're actually wanting to think long-term, then there's a longer term than just your retirement. There's a longer term than, than just when you get to kick back, you know, be financially independent and retire early. There's life after the life that this world tells you about. You see, there's this thing, the kingdom of this world, 
the, the world around us, it reminds us almost daily that the purpose of our lives is to own, is to accumulate, is to become. Not just financially stable, there are algorithms working against your satisfaction and your contentment every single day, saying what you bought one Stanley Cup, maybe you should buy a second Stanley Cup because a humongous cup, just one is not enough. I have something against, I only just found out what a Stanley Cup was, in case you didn't know, got a thing at the moment. Storing, and, and the world tells us, don't store up for yourself for the ideal future. Sorry, it says store it for yourself for the ideal future you've created in your mind. Everything we own, the world says, have and can earn is for our own benefit. And then it adds a little addendum to it and also for the benefit of your children. Like the greatest thing we could give our kids is a good inheritance. The kingdom of heaven suggests something different. The ancients actually go on to say that money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. And we fall into this trap, don't we? Or is it just me? Is it just me that longs for more? Is it just me that no matter how much money I have in my bank account, it's never enough? No matter how many goals I hit financially year after year, it's like the next year is a, is a different goal. And Jesus, Jesus looks at this circular way of living and says, I wanna offer a different way, a different meaningful existence, a different hope and a better future. And so He says this, let me teach you about a different investment we can make. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What if the purpose of our life was not building comfort for ourselves here? What if it wasn't about building a kingdom for our name, our good. And we don't use the word kingdom, we use the word portfolio, right? We don't use the word empire, we, we, we kind of use the word, you know, wise financial investments. What if that wasn't the chief end of our labour? What if it, there was a better story? What if there was a better kingdom? See, Jesus came in not to offer us ways that we can continue to perpetuate the behaviour that landed mankind where it was, but to offer an invitation and say, there is a better kingdom that when you invest into it, not just with your money, but with your time, with your life, it returns eternal dividends, eternal rewards that nothing can seal away from you. That's the kingdom that's on offer. It's a kingdom that we paint a picture of when we read the Gospels. A kingdom that says, what would it look like if there to be no needy people? That's the kingdom that God came to instigate. What would it look like for finances not to be a tyrannical, oppressive thing, but a tool used to actually better the good of all? What would it look like for a kingdom where people didn't live for themselves and did like tokenistic, you know, virtue signaling good acts as just like nice ideas to please their conscience, but died to themselves and lived for others? What about a kingdom that chose ways of peace where the world chose ways of war, ways of love when the world chose ways of hate? This is the kingdom that Jesus came to build. And He says, what would it look like for you to invest in this kingdom? a kingdom that will not fade, that cannot be put into a box, that tried to be buried in a tomb and it couldn't be contained. This is the kingdom that Jesus came to offer. But He says this interesting line. He says, 
You see, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We can say we're a part of God's kingdom and we can love the idea of God's kingdom. But Jesus seems to insinuate, actually, if you wanna know the kingdom you're invested in, it's a budget line. It's a direction of our finances. Now you may be new to Christianity today and saying, ah, I think that's a bit much. I'm, I'm not quite sure I see the leap. A couple of years ago, uh, a couple of friends told me this about this thing called crypto. I don't know if you've heard of crypto or Bitcoin. Um, and I was like, oh, you know, I was like most people, I took $50 and I decided to see what $50 could do, which if you've ever tried investing in crypto, not much. But I invested in this company called Red Fox. Hands up who's heard of Red Fox. Yeah, like three of us. Okay, I was expecting no one. So that's awesome that there's some people around. But Red, Red Fox is a company that uh, like innovates with virtual reality stuff. It was interesting. Before I invested in crypto, I did not give who Red Fox was. I did not care. But someone said, you should invest in this. I invested $50 and suddenly I was the aficionado of everything Red Fox. I was looking at virtual reality, competitors. I was like, I think Red Fox has got it. I Suddenly... Interestingly, this small investment had changed my whole disposition and opinion about an industry I had nothing. Friends, I've never even done virtual reality gaming in my life. But isn't this true? Like we go to a local coffee shop, we start investing money and they change barista and we're like, hey, I've got an opinion on this. We, we buy clothes and, and we become an official kind of brand ambassador without any invitation to be an influencer at all. Jesus is not trying to suggest something. He's actually diagnosing the reality of the human condition. That this is the power of money. That what our money flows towards, our heart follows. Our heart follows. And, and he's suggesting that for some of us, we have to question where is our heart really engaged? Is it in God's kingdom? See, the treasures of our life will naturally flow towards the kingdom we are building. You invest your treasure in what is most valuable to the kingdom you are building, the narrative you are inhabiting and the master that you serve. It's easy for us to give money to food outlets because they deliver what we love, to clothing outlets because we, we get something in return. We're investing money every single day. J.D. Greer puts it like this though, whose kingdom are you building, yours or God's? Alex told me about this great quote that I think is beautiful by a lady named Anne Lapp. And she says this, how you spend your money casts a vote for the kind of world you want. This makes me pause and recognise that what Jesus is trying to confront here is not just merely a call for us to be generous towards a cause, but actually a call for us to recognise the power of the resources we have to bring to bear the world that Christ has given us a vision for in our hearts. Like there's these, there's these moments where it actually challenges us to question the way we spend money in the companies that we do, the efficacy and the ethics behind the money that we invest. That we are now spending money like never before because a company can deliver it on time without question of what kind of world that company is building. This is more than just about giving to church, friends. It's about the power of that financial investment to actually sell the world the kind of kingdom we're called to be a part of and the vision that God has called us to invest into. 
And he says, actually, there's a new way. There's a new kingdom. Will you be a part of it? Will you be a part of it? What challenges me most about this is how difficult it is for me to confront that when we talk about the ways of Jesus, it's easier to idealize about what it means to invest into his kingdom and harder to get practical around these things. What would it look like if we were to spend our money in such a way where we were proud of where it went and what it did? So the bigger question is, is where you're spending your treasure mainly ending up in things that can be put back into a box or a kingdom that will never fail. Some of you are here today and you're not yet Christians. I believe one of the most attractive parts of the Christian life should be the way that Christians are so free to be generous because of the King that they serve. In fact, it was one of the living testimonies of the early church. So what I wanna do real quickly right in the middle here is just pause for a moment and explain how the early church took Jesus' words of investing in His unfailing kingdom seriously to build the world that they believe God called them to live in. There's this great quote from ancient wisdom that says that the ancient world, the ancient world was generous with their bodies and stingy with their money. The Christians, however, were stingy with their bodies and generous with their money. And it was these Christians who've made a lasting impact on history. So what does a rhythm of generosity look like in response to Matthew chapter 16, verse 19 to 24? What does a response to generosity look like to having a rhythm that looks like we have kingdom priorities and kingdom investments and kingdom issues at heart? Quite simply, the early church is the best way to examine this. And the early church demonstrates what it means to build God's kingdom with our finances by demonstrating three main ways that they would prioritise. The early church would give to the poor radically. The early church would give to each other. And the early church would give to the mission of the church. What I want to do for a moment is pause because so often we, we kind of walk past this and think that it's taken us back. But I want to just show biblically where this comes from. So you know, I'm not just suggesting, hey, here's a good ideas. These are how Scripture witnesses the Kingdom of God was played out by those who first followed Him and were inspired by His Holy Spirit to live out His way. The early church, first and foremost, they gave radically to the poor, which was so beautiful. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, Pastor Alex preached on this last week. Jesus assumed His disciples would give when He says, so when you give to the needy, not if you give to the needy. Luke chapter 12, verse 33 to 34, Jesus says to them, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide, first, provide purses for yourself that will never weigh out for a treasure lies for you in heaven that will never fail. Jesus is so clear that there is no talk of giving that He gives ever where He doesn't say a priority for those who wanna build a kingdom that looks like heaven is a priority to invest radically in the poor. And our friends, one of the barriers that might be for some of you here today is you may have had experiences in churches in the past where giving talks or generosity talks are talked about, but it's merely just ways to leverage us to give more money to God through His church and then kind of twisted that we would get something in return. I actually do not see any example in Scripture where God talks about generosity and He doesn't start with the needy and He doesn't start with the least and He doesn't start with the fine work that this church is doing through fishes of men saying, where are the last? Where are the lost? Where are the least? That's where we're gonna prioritise our generosity. 
Even in the book of Acts, we see consistently the early church looking out for widows and orphans. Why? Because they said, these people don't have others looking out for them. We will be radically generous. There was these lines said about the early church that was beautiful so that there might be no needy people amongst us. I know the reputation of New Life Brisbane is one that when people come here in need, this church always responds with generosity and graciousness. I pray, friends, may that not be a testimony of this church, but our individual lives as well. What is your rhythm of being generous to the poor? Because this is a rhythm of investing in the kingdom that God wants to bring to bear on this world. There's another thing that the early church did is that they would give to one another. Not only was it about not there being any needy people amongst them, but if there was a brother or sister in the church who had need, the early church Christians themselves didn't farm this out to an agency. They took that responsibility on. That if someone needed meals, they baked the meals. If someone needed financial aid to pay insurance, they assumed that responsibility together. Why? Even in Acts chapter four, it said that people who had properties sold their properties just to provide for those who were going without. This is a radical way of seeing the picture of of God's kingdom. And it changed changed the Middle East. It changed the world as we know it. Friends, what would it mean for this church to have a reputation that there is no one in this church that struggles because we care for one another? We've died to ourselves and we radically are looking out for the needs of those around us. Friends, I've got to tell you right now what said of Acts chapter two would be said of this church. The Lord would add to our number daily because this would be an economy of heaven. The last thing we see the early church prioritise and do is it gave to the church. Now I wanna just pause here for a moment because this is possibly the most controversial part where people, they raise barriers. Where they start to be like, ah, I knew this was coming. I've been here before. And maybe you are new to Christianity and you're like, oh, I'm not sure how I feel about this. So just first of all, I wanna talk to those of you who are Christians who have negative experiences with how churches talk about money. I wish that that hurt, that pain and that trauma hadn't existed. I grew up in a church circle where the language was this, if you give to God, you get Ferraris, cars, bigger houses. Friends, I've been giving ever since that day and I still just drive a Nissan Qashqai, which is a nice car for some people, which is great, but it's a long and it's about to die. But that's another story, uh, you know, anyway. And, and this economy I was sold in the church isn't the economy that I've experienced. And I'm like, I realised What a weird motivation to be generous just so that I might get more. Doesn't that actually go against the very way of dying to self that Jesus came to instigate? It confused me. And see, I just wanna for a moment, I'm not gonna go through all these Scriptures, but you may be wondering, just some references for you. If you take a screenshot of those Scriptures, this is the moment in the Bible where the principle of tithes and offerings come from. Two words you may have heard before, your first time in church, you might be like, tithes, this is weird. Back in ancient religions, tithes was a, was a way that people would celebrate giving to their God. It was an idea of giving a tenth of everything you had in worship to uh, the God you served. And we see this a lot in early Judaism and Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, God Himself adopts this with His people. We see it first with Abraham and Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And then in the book of Exodus, when His people have come out of Egypt, they've come into an abundance of possessions. God gives them a law. What I love about this is God gives them a law not to oppress them, but to teach them His culture and heart. He says, I wanna build into your rhythm generosity. So take a tenth of all your harvest and all of your produce every time you collect it and set it aside for the work of the Lord, for the temple and the things of God. 
Is this because God is needy and needs money? No, it's because He was trying to teach His people something really valuable. Don't become overwhelmed by the things of this world when we are a part of a bigger mission and a bigger call. The whole Old Testament revolved around this. And in Malachi chapter three, when the Jewish people stopped celebrating the tithe and offering and regularly doing this, they were told and accused of robbing God of what He'd called them to be generous with. God said, test me on this Israelites. I will bless you with, with abundance, not necessarily monetarily, but with my goodness and my favour and my rest, if you trust me with what we've agreed. Now this principle of tithes and offerings is something that's been celebrated throughout the history of the church. It's when you are paid or when a salary comes in, it's building into your world rhythms of generosity because friends, to be honest, when we say, oh, I'll just kind of be randomly generous, that usually means I won't be as generous as I could be. And so part of the practice of early Christianity wasn't to celebrate tithes, which was a 10% of our income given towards the mission of God out of this obligation. It was a way of reminding our hearts that we're called to be a generous people. Jesus never once said that we had to carry over the gifts of tithes. In fact, here's a, here's a fact that you can take back to those churches that told you it was a must. There is nowhere in the New Testament that says that 10% is something that the Christians have to celebrate. It's actually way worse than that, friends. It's actually when Jesus, even talking about the sexual ethic, says you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So take all you have and offer it to God. Michael, can we go back to 10%? That was way better. Actually, that looks way better. Please. But what we do see in the New Testament is that Paul never lets Christians walk away from their obligation to support the mission of God through the local church. If you go to the next slide, we see in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where Paul speaks about the need to give, uh, the importance of giving. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 to 9, he says to the Corinthian church, the Macedonians guys, these guys are really poor and they're giving a lot of money. You guys aren't giving much money. I'm just telling you, you're missing out on what God is doing. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 to 18, in Galatians verse 6 to 6, Paul writes to the church and says, hey, listen, it is a good and godly thing for the church to provide for those who preach the gospel and pastor God's people. This is a good and godly practice. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 to 18, it's there twice. It's not me being manipulative. That's me making mistakes with PowerPoints. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, again, enforces this sense and rhythm that says, hey, don't give under compulsion. Don't give because a pastor hops up the front and says, if you don't, God will be angry. That's manipulation and it's sinful. It says, give out of a joyful heart. There's this offering and beckoning of the New Testament Scriptures that say, don't let money hold you back from being a part of what God wants you to do. And so friends, I offer this with humility. It is for those of us who are followers of Jesus, it is the burden of evidence is on those who do not think it is a biblical principle to give to the local church because there is no evidence of that in Scripture that actually what God is doing through God's gathered people isn't the responsibility of those who are paid on staff. It is the responsibility of all those who call themselves followers of Jesus. That I see people in this room right now who have given their life to God from Alpha because of the generosity of this church. I see people in this room right now who've, who've come and been part of what God is doing here because of the way that we resource small groups and structure pastoral care in this church. And that has happened because people have said, not I, but us, not me, but we, where I die to myself and invest in that which is truly eternal. And the hard thing about Paul is that he's so interesting when he writes in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, he says this, he says, but since you excel in everything in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. 
I'm not commanding you. Here's the interesting thing. Friends, here's the good news from Paul. I'm not commanding you to give. Everyone say, praise the Lord. That was a little too loud, a little too fast. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. He says, I'm not gonna command you to give, but I wanna let you know, I wanna test how well you know the love of God by the generosity of your life. I would have preferred a command. That would have been way easier. In fact, Timothy Keller, uh, he says it like this, it would have been way kinder for Paul to give a command they could meet rather than say, show me your understanding of the gospel by the generosity you have to the things of God. What a challenge. So friends, I, I just, as we wrap up, Sarah and I, we've struggled with this throughout our marriage. I've struggled with it as a young adult. But one thing that was taught for me from a young man is that when I earn, the first person I worship is not my kingdom, but God's. So when Sarah and I sit down once a year and the way that we celebrate this together is that we actually build into our budget what generosity looks like. Uh, we boldly celebrate 10% and, and, and then a bit more. I don't say that uh, because that impresses you. Like Pastor Alex preached last week, if that impresses you, then I've just robbed myself of any reward in heaven. Um, I'm saying that as a way of demonstrating that, that this stuff has been central. Because can I be honest with you? I like money. I don't know if I can say that. You know, is that okay? Like, I, I enjoy when, when I can accumulate money. I, I have greed in my life. The antidote to that greed is not better financial management. It's been generosity every time. And so we build it in. Because I know there will be bills, there will be holidays, there'll be needs that will come up and crop out. And so there is a part of our budget that is always untouchable because I say, God, it's gotta be you first. And you might say, yeah, but Michael, how, how, how generous should I be? You know, am I generous enough? And, and I heard someone once say, to answer the question, how generous should you be? A safe answer for the Christian is probably a little bit more than you are right now. Great guider for my life. What would it look like for me to pour out God? I wanna continue to be increasing my generosity to the poor, to others, to your work, to your missions. We, we, we budget what it means for us to partner with charities that we're passionate about and what God has called us to do. And we build margin in that we might be able to be spontaneously generous. Why? Because I wanna see the money that God has gifted me with to build the kingdom of God here on earth in our time. That when I stand with the Father in heaven, the reward, friends, I do not believe will be a bigger mansion or a nicer car because I don't just think heaven's gonna work that way. I think the reward that Jesus talks about is far better than money will ever be. It is the reward of being able to stand there and see the people who've come to know Jesus because of the kingdom of God. It is the reward of standing there and saying, God, I got to be a part of what you did. You are beautiful and amazing. This is the investment that will pay dividends for eternity because everything else in this world gets put back in the box. So friends, there are really only two things that are stopping us from being generous, I believe today. The first one is that we don't trust. We don't trust the poor. We don't trust others and we don't trust the church. I just wanna challenge us, particularly on the needy. I was walking through Brisbane, uh, sorry, uh, Melbourne City with my son, Archer, and I walked past one of these, uh, just people on the street who were homeless and they were, they were in need. And there was um, this thing in me of like, I won't give to them because I don't know how they'll use the money. And I, and I realised what I was actually teaching my son is to walk past need 
when it's actually so easy for me to go and purchase food. I think we do that a lot, don't we? We justify why someone doesn't deserve something rather than going, God, is this an opportunity? And I wanna suggest that maybe God wants to actually heal some of the lack of trust we have in the systems made by man that we might be financially generous for His glory and His good, particularly of the church. The friends in the past where the church has hurt, where we've watched you know, too many documentaries on Netflix or the latest TV series on stand about the church's abuses, my ask, would we not respond to the failures of man, but would we respond to the generosity of God? The second thing is, is quite honestly, I think part of the reason why we don't give towards the things of God is because of greed. And we don't wanna admit that. That greed plays far more of a voice in the Western world than we would like to admit. How many times do you hear people talk about greed? Yet nearly every second news article is about how you're getting priced out of Brisbane, how the crash in the share market, how your portfolio, it's consistently reinforcing the narrative of worry about dollars. And I just sense today that Jesus wants to set some people free of that. I don't think Jesus is going to, well, maybe He will, let me not speak for Him, but I do not think Jesus is necessarily gonna be like, go sell everything you have right now and just, you know, go live with the poor. I'm not sure that's the next step for us, but I wonder if the next step for us is to actually look and examine our hearts and say, God, are you king or are you just my functional saviour whilst I grow my kingdom? Timothy Keller would say it like this. Should be on the slide before. How do you know that money isn't just money to you? Here are some signs. You can't give large amounts of it away. You get scared if you might have less than you're accustomed to having. You see people who are doing better than you, even though you might have worked hard or might be a better person and it gets under your skin. And when that happens, you have one foot in the trap already because then it's no longer just a tool, it's the scorecard, it's your essence, it's your identity. No matter how much money you have, though it's not intrinsically evil, it has incredible power to keep you from God. And Jesus came, friends, to show you a way of life that would set you free from the burden of sin. He traded the riches of heaven to take on the poverty of humanity that you might gain the riches He gave up, that you might inherit His goodness, His love, His position in exchange, that He might take the poverty of our brokenness, our sin and our shame and everything that we might see God's kingdom not only outworked in our life, but in our world. Friends, if you are trapped by greed, there is a way out today. And it's not by emptying your banking account, it's by surrendering your life to Jesus. It's by saying, Jesus, take it all, take all of me. I guarantee you, you'll be led on the greatest adventure and journey of all time. C.S. Lewis puts it so brilliantly. He says it like this, my iPad is dead, so I'm just running off script. Christ, not really, there's a time. Anyway, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self. In fact, I will give you myself. My own shall become yours. Friends, are you ready to have a life that is unhindered, unbounded by the latest financial advice that we might invest generously into God's kingdom and in His work. Now I know some of you are sitting here today and you're going, yeah, but Mark, what does it mean for us to do this wisely? Friends, we have too much financial wisdom and not enough generous risk. I don't think we need more wisdom. I think we need more obedience to Jesus. 
because you have enough financial wisdom out there and I encourage you to talk to financial advisors, all those things. That's, I'm not a qualified one of those. None of this comes with any qualifications other than knowing this, Jesus is far better with me and my things than I am. Will you trust Him today? So let me finish by asking this question. What does your rhythm of generosity say about where your treasure is stored? Jesus finishes and says this, you can't serve both God and money. You will love one and hate the other, desire one and despise the other. Who's Lord? Who's King? May be the only one who couldn't be put back in a box. His name is Jesus. So for a moment, I just wanna pause. I wanna ask the Holy Spirit just to come and just ask us this question. What is our rhythm of generosity? What does your rhythm of generosity say about the place of the poor in the Kingdom of God? What does your rhythm of generosity say about other people in your community? What does your rhythm of generosity say about the place of the Bride of Christ in your life? Jesus loves His church. He calls us to do the same. Only as we respond to Him. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment together. Lord Jesus, right now, we just surrender to You. I pray, Lord Jesus, there are some of us right now that are caught up in the worry and anxiety, the power of greed. There are some of us here, Father, who we've been walking this journey so long, we've realised we've never actually surrendered all of our life to You. May today be the beginning. Jesus, I believe right now there are people in this room who you're offering life and life to the full, not in exchange for money, not in exchange for their deeds, but purely and freely because of your grace, your goodness and your love. Friends, if you're here today and you are choked and strangled by worry and concern and you long for life and life to the full, it's on offer. All it takes is for you to surrender your life in exchange for the new life in Christ. I wonder today if you're here and you wanna know that abundant life, to ask for forgiveness for your sins. Turn to Him and know you are unconditionally loved right now. If you'd like to accept that offer of abundant life, I just wonder in this moment, would you just raise your hand? I'd love to pray for you, wherever you are. Would you raise your hand? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Yeah, I see your hand. Thanks, Faye. I'm going to pray for you. Anyone else? Lord Jesus, I stand with those who raised their hand today and I thank You that You never forsake Your promises. You are always good to Your Word. So I pray right now for those who raise their hands in Jesus' Name, I pray would You flood them with Your life and Your life to the full. If you, if you raise your hand today, I'd just love you to repeat these words after me with every Christian in the room as we respond to Jesus. Dear Jesus, thank You for Your love. Thank You for Your life. I'm sorry for my mistakes. Sorry for my greed. 
I change my worry for your freedom. I accept your forgiveness. Lead me into your life, your life everlasting. In Jesus' Name, Amen. Father, we thank You so much for those who have responded to Your Gospel today. We celebrate with heaven, but Lord, I pray for all of us, would we all respond to You? Professor, friends, right across this room, would you just stand to your feet wherever you are right now in this moment? And I wonder if you're a follower of Jesus, would you just stretch your hands out in front of you? Lord Jesus, I ask, would you lead us right now to show the parts of our life where greed has more say than generosity? Where our kingdom rules over your kingdom. Lord, I pray, would you save us from greed? That we would be marked by radical generosity. Lord Jesus, I pray, may this be a community that has a reputation that all the money and resources and time and effort we have is spent seeing Your Kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' Name. We're about to just sing and just remind ourselves of the goodness of God, of His blessing and His goodness. We have some people who are gonna pray and I just wanna challenge you, man, if there's something in the sermon you're wrestling with, if you're struggling, can I be honest? There'd be nothing more beautiful in church today than for people to come down the front and say, hey, can I receive some prayer? I've got greed in my life. I think that would be a bold, honest confession of an ailment of the West that we would say, Lord Jesus, would You reign? So we've got the prayer team. If you guys would just make your way forward now, that'd be amazing. And um, as they do, if you would love prayer, if you wanna confess, if you wanna make public declarations saying, hey, I wanna be more generous for Jesus, then I'd love you to come forward and receive prayer. May this be a church where that's something that we say often, that greed would not have its final word here. In Jesus' Name, let's worship Him together. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.